Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I'm your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to today's episode, a thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. Thank you also to the Clinician Experience Project by Practicing Excellence for sponsoring this episode. The Clinician Experience Project provides coaching and development solutions for clinicians, leaders, and teams working in some of the nation's largest hospitals and healthcare systems. As a leading provider of clinician-designed content, the Clinician Experience Project team partners with clients to deploy skill-building programs that map directly to organizational goals, delivering measurable enterprise-wide results. To learn more about how your organization can improve patient and organizational outcomes, visit www.practicingexcellence.com. My guest in this episode of Explore the Space podcast is Dr. Sasha Berleman. Dr. Berleman is the director of the Fire Forward program at Audubon Canyon Ranch, which is a nonprofit conservation organization connecting nature, people, and science in a rapidly changing world. Dr. Berleman plans and organizes cooperative prescribed burns, and she also trains and leads community engagement in fire management. She earned her doctorate in wildland fire science from University of California, Berkeley, focusing on the prescribed fire use for restoration of ecosystem health. Now, if you've listened to Explore the Space podcast, you know that wildfires have been a huge part of my life and a priority for us to learn about as we think about climate change and its impact on public health and how we live our lives. This is an amazing episode. Dr. Berleman is absolutely fantastic. She talks about things in a way that I had just never even dreamed of, but also lays out kind of what the road forward looks like, how we can get engaged. This is just awesome. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Please do check out the entire archive of Explore the Space podcast, www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can hit me on Twitter anytime at ETS show. You can email me, mark at explorethespaceshow.com, and you can subscribe to Explore the Space wherever you like to download your shows. Please do leave us that rating and a review. That really helps the show out. It is late June. It is hot. There's another heat wave coming to the Western United States. There has never been a better time to learn from an expert like Dr. Berleman. So without further ado, Dr. Sasha Berleman. Uh, a big part of the work that I think needs to happen with that awareness is just really making sure people know what they're doing, are making good decisions around how they uh, treat the systems around their homes, how they actually approach uh, making sure that their houses are safe and uh, making sure that they have a plan for how to be safe. Um, so there's a lot of 
specific education that needs to be added to it, but the general awareness definitely shows us moving in a good direction. I'm struck by the ease with which you said living with fire. And I guess why I'm struck by it is having grown up in Santa Rosa and wildfire at that time was, these were things that happened way out in the mountains and they were, Oh wow, there's a fire there. And maybe we'd see a little plume of smoke or something like that. Now it does feel like it's going to be something that we, it already is something that we just have to live with, that we will live with. It's, it's a component of living in the Western United States. And the faster that we can embrace that and sort of realize it and take the right steps, the better off we're going to be. Did I understand? Is, is that sort of when you say live with fire, is that what you, is that kind of what you mean to come across? 100%. So we've had for the past 150 years, this complete misconception that we could control whether or not fires happened here and we could stop all fires at a really small acreage really quickly and prevent the landscape from having fire on it and burning. Um, and we're, we've learned <laughs> from that mistake. We're learning now in some very challenging ways too, in very real ways, uh, how intense that mistake was. And uh, so, yeah, learning to live with fire is essentially acknowledging that, but not just acknowledging that fire has to burn here and it's going to burn here and we can't stop that, but taking that to the next level of realizing that fire is meant to be a part of these landscapes. It's meant to be a part of the human experience living in this part of the world. And you know, really as a whole, our ecosystems and us as a part of them need fire to actually reach balance and thrive. But we we need to find out what type of fire that is and navigate a new relationship with that. The idea of, of the relationship with it is is really interesting and it's kind of a tricky one to wrap the mind around. I think for for me, what I've observed is the the part around the fear generation is seeing you know, what's in your job title, wildland fire, seeing it cross that invisible line where it moves into developed land fire. And obviously we saw that in Santa Rosa with the Tubbs fire. And we've seen it every year since where these fires that used to happen out in the boonies and be extinguished quickly, like you described, they now cross into areas that are heavily populated and do extraordinary damage and leave these lasting consequences finding a way to move the fires away from that boundary back kind of into the wildland. How much of a priority is that? Or even is, is it even realistic? I'm not sure we could say that that would be realistic in the short term. And, and with that, I mean, you know, maybe if my best guess might be for the next 10 to 15 years, it would be, I think, unrealistic to expect that we could get our extreme fire events to stay out of developed areas. Um, we have way too many houses scattered into that wildland area, right? There's a gradient and that the density of houses in that gradient is constantly skyrocketing, um, which further increases that transition zone from the wildland into developed areas. Um, we have way too much fuel on the landscape in the wildland areas and all of that combined with wind events and extreme wind events means that uh, where we are going to be getting uh, significant behavior from wildland fires pushing into developed areas until we can turn this around. So um, I think a, a part of learning to live with fire then is 
learning to change the way we see our houses and the um, our developments and their relationship with fire as well. So we need to be all of us, even if we live in a in a city, having fire hardened structures and keeping flammable materials minimized around our homes so that we're we're engaging this living with fire concept in every aspect of our lives. The 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 time frame that you give, would you say that that applies to the entire Western United States? Does it apply worldwide? Does it apply just to, you know, California, north of San Francisco or, you know, south of L.A.? How, how would you and, and how how malleable is it? How quickly could we maybe tighten that up if we really tried? Yeah, you know, it's a, these are really tough questions. They're really I interesting can only ones imagine. too, though. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I, I I know what I want to hear you say, and I know that it puts you in a terrible spot. To, I'm sure you get bombarded with these questions. We <laughs> we want to hear an expert say everything's going to be fine, Mark. But we also know that it's not. It hasn't been, and why would it be different? Yeah, I I will say that there. I have immense hope that we can turn around our situation and and the quantities of really enthusiastic people who are coming out and wanting to learn and wanting to take a proactive and uh, involved approach and how they can change their relationship with fire. Um, I'm, I'm absolutely hopeful that we can turn this around. And, and I think I would limit my, uh, like my expressions around our relationship with fire probably to Northern California, because that's, this is the only area that I would say I'm engaged with enough to really see uh, what a transition could look like. But in Northern California, we are seeing more and more people from the public deciding that uh, even if they work as a barista or as a computer coder for a tech company, um, whatever world they work in, just existing in this part of the world means needing to know how to live with fire, needing to develop some kind of understanding and relationship with it. And so I think we're seeing almost an exponential growth of people wanting to steward landscapes and understanding that stewardship is a is a requirement for living in these areas for people and ecosystems to thrive. Um, and so if over the next 10 years we're getting more and more people engaged in and developing expertise in stewarding these ecosystems, managing those fuel loads, putting small, low-intensity fires on the ground at the right time of year across the landscape, we could, I believe, in 10 to 15 years, see a change in the way that our wildfires burn across the land. But it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of everyone getting on the same page, coming together together. And probably also continuing shifts in policy, but all of that is already starting and happening, and it's been happening at a shocking rate over the last three to five years already. So I can only imagine that in ten to fifteen years we could be in a completely different place that's much better than we are now. That is great to hear, and it's good to know that there's that sort of grassroots up upwelling of of energy and activity for sure. How much support are you seeing and how much sort of change in mindset are you seeing from policymakers and governmental bodies at the state level and at the federal level to aid in the work that you're doing? 
things are definitely already changing and pretty quickly. So there's a Senate Bill 332 that's a, a just in the final stages before getting passed now, but so far has had unanimous votes of approval uh, that is changing the liability law around using prescribed fire in California. Um, we already were, were in kind of a moderate category, but it's supporting shifting to a little bit more of a lenient category for prescribed burning, um, not entirely, but partially. And the basis for that is that we are going to have wildfire. There's no no wildfire option uh, and we need prescribed fire. And so if we're going to have ignitions, no matter what happening on the landscape, and many of them are going to be in pretty extreme out of control situations, if there's some small portion and some small chance that some prescribed fire gets out, some planned ignition gets out and becomes a wildfire. That's just a drop in the bucket of the wildfires that we're having and are going to continue to have and that will continue worsening if we're not doing more prescribed burning. And so we needed to start shifting liability law to be more lenient, to get more prescribed fire on the ground, create opportunities for insurance to insure people who are doing that work. Um, so we we're seeing that uh, legislation already moving in the right direction. We're seeing a lot of great researchers pairing with legislators to to make sure that they have all the information that they need to make the right decisions and help us move forward. And I think it's just going to continue improving from there. When you think about people's level of engagement increasing and the number of people who are approaching you individually and then, you know, from organizations and governmental bodies and they bring their, their energy to you. What are the, what's the sort of low hanging fruit that you give to people? You got, they have, they have a couple minutes with you and they get to ask you like, look, I'm, I'm as scared as anybody else, or, Hey, I'm a fire survivor. They share their story and they say, it's 2021. What do I do differently? What's the low hanging fruit? What are the couple of things that you like to give people so that they can get back in their car and go home and get to work? Ooh, that's a good question. So usually it's a little bit the other way around. I'll I'll give that precursor that usually the way I meet folks who are trying to change their relationship with fire after having been through a traumatic experience of wildfire, they're showing up at our program, showing up wanting to learn how to use prescribed fire and oh, become wow. familiar. Yeah, right. Isn't that shocking? They're already leveled I, way up. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're leveling up so fast. They're they're like facing that fear, right? They're, yeah. they're making the decision that they don't want to live in trauma and they, they know that fire is necessary and they know that we, we need it and they know that they have trauma around it. So they're coming out specifically to gain training and learn how to engage with fire actively as a, as a, almost like a dance partner. I use that analogy a lot. Wow. Yeah. On the ground. So, so that's the way it usually pans out for me. And then as we're training these folks up, we're we're doing some discussion around maintaining calm breathing as you're working with fire so that you can keep your awareness and see kind of what the fire behavior is doing, where it's going next, what it might do next. Um, so we're we're almost talking through some of that trauma on the fire line as we're training them up and through these courses that we're offering. And then other ways in which it shows up is we'll we'll do a site visit to someone's home or to the place that their home used to be before a wildfire. And we'll talk through the 
the landscape that they have around their house and their structure. And we kind of talk through the, the resilience or lack thereof and how we could build more resilience into the place that they call home and make it something that makes sense and is sustainable for a safer, better future. That's so compelling because like I've said you know, many times before on the show and I've told you, like I, I live here, I live in the middle of wildfire country. And I also know that Sonoma County is one of the most incredible, beautiful, fun places on the planet to be. It's this weird juxtaposition that we have because now when we are driving around and you know with friends and stuff like that, we're kind of looking at you know the the beautiful mountainsides and things like that, and we're just like, that's a lot of fucking fuel, man. And the the whole language with which we look at our region is different, and it's it's uncomfortable. Yeah, it's it's been really. That's I mean, I'm so glad to hear you say that. It's been really interesting. Because ever since my education and my building of some experience in this field over the last decade, uh, when I go on hikes with friends, and this has been true for years now, uh, you know, my friends are like, oh, it's so green. It's so beautiful out here. What a beautiful hike we're on. And I'm looking around saying, oh, my gosh, there's so much fuel oh in this gosh. woodland or forest. Yeah. It's, it's awful. Like, I'm I'm having stress just being oh. here on this hike. <laughs> so, <laughs> totally. <laughs> I think more people are seeing that, right? It's everything is about the lens that we view the world around us through yeah. and more and more people are are viewing the world through that like fire and fuels management and stewardship lens, um, which I think is good. It's an eye opening, but, but then equipping people with the tools to deal with that or to take action, I think is a really important follow-up to that awareness. Yeah, for sure. Acknowledging that we're in this place where we look around and we see fuel and put that next to write this timeline that you, because there aren't many people would even come close to your level of expertise saying that we're a good decade away from, you know, a, a meaningful difference. Hopefully it's faster, but that's where that's our current state. Uh, as we now sit here and we move forward into another wildfire season, what are your asks for individuals that live in the Western United States for obviously the region that you know the best, the Northern part of California? What are the things that, again, when you meet with those people, what are you asking them to do so that every little bit of fire reduction risk, fire risk reduction, we can do the better. What are, what are those things for you as, as one of our experts that we have to lean on? I think the basic starting point is make your house less flammable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, really invest the time to make sure that your house itself, the structure itself is as minimally flammable as possible. There aren't ways for embers to get into your attic or crawl space uh, that you don't have, you know, bags of charcoal or a wooden broom right up against your house. Um, and then clearing any dead growing material or dead, uh, yeah, brushy material away from your house. All of that is super important. And then having a, a good, safe way to evacuate and escape, having your go bag packed, all of that, so that your life it, itself is is safe in that moment. Um, if in case anything happened, because we can no longer live with the framework of oh, it won't happen to me, right? We all have to be prepared for it to happen to us as well. Um, and then after that, because I mean, that's priority because we're entering the summer season and as another really looking like a terrible season of wildfires. Uh, but I think in the meantime, in addition to that, if people can start developing some of the basic knowledge and skills around 
uh, our ecosystems and their need for fire and uh, maybe even taking a basic weld and firefighter course just so that they're they're kind of learning some of the basic tools of the trade of what it means to be involved in weld and fire. Um, you know, that's that may be a lot to ask for many people, but if that's accessible, something that I've started saying is that anyone who owns land in Northern California, I think should, uh, you know, just in the same way that they likely already know how to run a chainsaw safely and effectively, I think tools that should be added to that toolkit are a drip torch and a backpack pump. And in the middle of winter, when risk is really low, it would be really awesome to start seeing landowners across Northern California getting familiar with a drip torch as a tool, just like a chainsaw and a backpack pump to make sure it stays safe and uh, actually doing that ecosystem stewardship actively, not just sitting on land, but stewarding it uh, throughout the year. I'm glad that you've given the tools that I have seen pictures of you wearing and been like, what is this? Now I know what they are, a drip torch and a backpack pump. So, and we, we got to get to that, but I also want to just mention, when you mentioned the word go bag, how that has become such a common part of discourse now. What do you have in yours? Oh, I have this stuff. What do you keep in your car? Oh, it's time to update everything. I mean, my wife and I have these conversations, right? We got to make sure, you know, my son grows fast. We got to have fresh clothes for him. You know, we've been evacuated three times in four years um, and we evacuate voluntarily most of the time because the fires we're not we haven't been in a mandatory zone, but I got to go to work. I got to go to the hospital and I can't be at work doing my job when I'm thinking, gosh, is my family going to be OK? Or what if they have to evacuate and I'm not with them? So we just we've taken those decisions a little bit you know, more proactively. But that whole concept of preparation is is really important. But one of the things that I think about in that space, though is it does put a lot of the socioeconomic rifts in our community into pretty specific relief. You know, it's one thing for me to be able to do it, but there's a lot of people who may not be able to prepare in the same way that I am so fortunate to be able to do. Is that a common barrier? Is that something that we need to be more aware of? I definitely think it's something we need to be more aware of and working with our governmental institutions to find solutions for as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty tough, especially with when you look at the Tubbs fire and you see it kind of came down through properties of people with a lot of privilege and embers from those properties are blowing across into places like uh, Coffee Park. Right. There's there's some pretty significant uh, socioeconomic pieces there yeah. for sure. Blew across a freeway, it should be mentioned, blew across six lanes of freeway. Yeah. <laughs> to get into Coffee yeah. Park. And yeah, I mean, the, the disparities there are significant. And I mean, we're still, we still feel it, right? I, it, the Tubbs fire is still on everybody's lips and it was four years ago. Right. To pivot though, to the actual like boots on the ground work that you do, what is the experience of doing that sort of fire management of doing those planned burns of carrying that drip torch and the pump backpack? What does that experience feel like? <laughs> Aside from um, really hot. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I tend to feel a lot hotter on days that I'm in a heat wave and not wearing all of that gear <laughs> for some reason. It just disappears when you're in the moment in the, all that gear and, and doing the work. Um, yeah. But it feels great. <laughs> and yeah. I, I think that that's true 
for people who are coming out and, and learning these skills for the first time, I think, um, for folks who are coming out after experiencing trauma, which I'm, I'm lucky that that was not a part of my pathway personally, but, um, at, at least not part of my development into this, but I think there's, there's a sense of relief and empowerment as they start getting involved in that. Um, I can only imagine, that, like, I want to go uh, with yeah. you just to see it happen. So I can have like 5% of that relief and empowerment for sure. And I'm not alone. There's a lot of people that I've, you know, that I've told I'm going to be interviewing you or I've shown them articles about you and, you know, the organization you're a part of fire forward that we're going to talk about. They're like, I, I, I want, I want to see it. I want to, I want to experience it because exactly what you just described, right? That sense of relief and empowerment. We, 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 we lack it right now. Right. Yeah. I think it's, it's really, um, it's just so present there at this point. So I'd say though, for, for me and for my colleagues who've been doing this for a while and something that has drawn us to this work for, for a number of years now is that there's also a, it's, it's an art form putting fire on the ground, determining the right time of the year to do it the right day, even the right time of day to do it, uh, putting down fire in this artful way where you're going to be stewarding the exact behavior from it that you want and meeting objectives. Uh, and, you know, you're, you're basically painting using fire across the landscape to bring recovery and resilience to that piece of ground. And it's so rewarding to, to do that. And it, it really, it, I come back to that dance partner analogy. It feels like you're, you're dancing with fire in a, in a way that you have to develop a really deep and profound respect for it. And you have to understand and give it the space of, uh, for it to behave the way it needs to behave. But you can also manage that behavior by knowing it so well and respecting it so well that you put it on the ground and you give it a, a place to show itself and uh, to be honored on the ground uh, so that it's, it's doing its best possible work. It's like, absolutely performing and it's best possible dance performance. <laughs> that is amazing to to think of it, having that sort of choreographed approach. I, I, I would have never dreamed to have think of something that I'm this afraid of to, to in those sorts of terms. I think it probably bears saying aloud. And even though it goes without saying, this is not the right time for anyone to be doing this given where we are and that no one should ever do something like this unless they have absolutely the right experts and the right approach and the right time of year. That's so important. And, and we are, that's part of the struggle we're dealing with right now in this area is that there, there actually have not been that many people in our region in the North Bay of California who have dedicated their lives to this expertise. So we're very quickly training up a lot of people who are brand new to this with not a ton of people around locally to be the leaders, to provide that generational knowledge and expertise to, to help steward people into this. So um, it's a really important piece of all of this work is that it takes a lot of experience being on the ground with mentors available to train you and teach you and coach you to really become artful with fire. And um, this is, it's definitely not something to go learn by yourself. And this is definitely not the time of year to be experimenting with that at all. <laughs> Definitely not. You know what I love about this and the, about the work that you're doing in the way you, that you describe it and the way that you are leading in this region 
this is how we harden ourselves against climate change. This is how this is the mindset. What you're laying out is the template for around the world, whether it's wildfire or hurricane or whatever the case, these are the things that need to happen at the individual, the community, the neighborhood level to harden ourselves against the impacts of climate change. And and the faster we do that, the more we can mitigate because we're very much in a mitigation phase with respect to the impacts of climate change. But the faster we can do this, the, the more we can kind of harden our communities and, and our society against these overwhelming feeling disasters. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. You're part of an organization I know in our region that's doing a lot of work. And that's how I found out about you. I read an article about Fire Forward, and that's how I learned about you. What what do these organizations look like? What does Fire Forward look like? How do people access it? How do we <laughs> how do we make you super famous? Basically, is what I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, more and more programs like this pop up. We're definitely part of a bigger network across the U.S. that uh, kind of the Nature Conservancy started stewarding back in 2008, and we've kind of developed this whole network across the U.S. and now internationally uh, focusing on prescribed burning and bringing prescribed fire back to ecosystems that need it and to people who thrive in living with it. Um, But so Fire Forward, (laughs) to to come back to the question, is a nonprofit capacity building program for prescribed burning. And we focus in the Bay Area, primarily in the North Bay, but kind of at this point reach about an eight county region area around the San Francisco Bay. And we're focused on basically identifying the hurdles and gaps that are preventing us from getting good fire or prescribed fire on the ground. In this case, we're talking about prescribed fire um, and trying to fix them. So Back in 2016, 2017, when we were getting started, there really wasn't prescribed fire happening on private lands in the North Bay area. It was not part of our culture or tool set. And so we started by just trying to get some prescribed fire on the ground, get some people familiar with that as a concept, get a few people out to be on it. Um, And now we're at a totally different point. Part of that, too, is trying to get equipment and and just trying to have the equipment available to do a prescribed fire safely and effectively because we didn't have that either. And the local fire engines need to keep their engines staffed up and ready to go to go to a wildfire response. So we can't be depending on local engines to provide all of that gear and equipment. So we started trying to just solve those. And then as people started getting involved, it became really apparent that we need to be training people and building this capacity in the general public around us and in the land managers around us, people who are in need of tools to steward ecosystems. And so nowadays we are we are training the public and training uh, folks from the local prescribed burn association, which I'll talk about in a second, so that they can be equipped with these uh, skill sets so that they can do this work on the ground. As part of that, we're also realizing that as more and more people are becoming equipped with the skills to do this, they also need the equipment. And our one equipment cache in my program is never going to meet all of those needs. So now we're also trying to encourage these people coming together from all over the region 
to develop these skill sets to also build their own equipment caches, like I was talking about earlier, where they could go out during those low risk windows in the middle of winter and do ecosystem stewardship using fire as a tool after they've developed that skill set themselves. Um, the the community organization that has formed as the way of basically becoming the hub to bring people together around this common goal is the Good Fire Alliance. And the Good Fire Alliance is the community network of neighbors helping neighbors to get good fire on the ground in the Sonoma County and Marin County areas of the North Bay. And prescribed burn associations, which the Good Fire Alliance is one of, is it's no new concept. It came out of the Midwest. And uh, back in the Midwest, it was a small group of ranchers who would get together and help each other burn on their neighbor's properties when the time was right uh, to improve pastures. And that kind of trickled out. And every different prescribed burn association has its own culture based on the needs of that area, what they're trying to accomplish, who's involved. So all of the prescribed burn associations look very different. And Sonoma Marin County's Good Fire Alliance is uh, no exception. So it's full of really brilliantly diverse folks coming from all different backgrounds, all different identities, and everyone with this common goal and objective of developing these skill sets to get good fire on the ground and helping each other do it through volunteer community activism at a grassroots level. I've never heard wildfire activism discussed in this way, and it's really exciting. We'll have links to all of those organizations, obviously, in the show notes. Uh, but just to know that this is the work that's happening and uh, this much of it has sort of been stirred up just in the last couple of years from that grassroots energy, uh, that's exciting. I mean, there's just, I don't have a better word for it. I, that that's It's heartening and it's exciting. I would agree. It's That's really what's been keeping me going and keeps improving my hope for our ability to get out of this. Just seeing how many people want to be a part of this, how many people want to be involved, develop these skill sets and not just folks who do land management as their profession, but people from all different backgrounds wanting to be a part of the movement. Yeah. So as we move through the next several months and we're all kind of looking at the sky for rain clouds and looking at our phone for nixel alerts and and waiting to see what this fire season brings us how are you living your life are you doing things differently what things are you doing and what would you like those around you to do as we just still also try to enjoy living in this most incredible part of the world <laughs> uh i suppose my way of living my life through this summer season is a little different from many <laughs> in that we're we're planning prescribed burns through this entire summer uh, because we have so much work to do as soon as the rains come back this fall. So I'm I'm getting out there making sure that we are as ready as we can possibly be to hit the ground running when the fall season comes and reduce the amount of fuel on those landscapes after this summer is done so that they're not risked for future years and so that those ecosystems have a chance to make it through those future summers when wildfire does come eventually. Um, we also are working on a couple of prescribed burns that would actually happen during the early part of this summer. So part of the way that we get through this is 
in collaboration with the local fire department, there are some burn units that we have, some areas where we would plan prescribed fire that are best burned in the early part of the summer when temperatures are relatively cool still and we don't have any of that active wind, but the fuel is dry enough that we can consume it really quickly and get it out of there before the later part of the summer hits. So that's another part of my my summer work right now is is a couple more burn units that we have lined up for this this early summer. Um, other than that, it's it's staying ready and paying attention to those nixal alerts and uh, keeping an eye on the the fire mapper. I'll be leading some of the Good Fire Alliance folks this summer, probably on a local wildfire or or two, depending on how local. Uh, we're not sure how local that would be, but. Um, so part of it would also be training folks from the local prescribed burn association on a, a live wildfire as well. So we did that for the first time last summer. It worked really well. We were able to help the local fire departments. And uh, I think we'll be doing that a little bit more this summer, too. As you're doing all this work and you've got a clearly a 12 month a year workload, where do people find you? How do they follow you? How do they learn more about all of this stuff that you're doing? Ooh, good question. So we just we just started an Instagram account. <laughs> so so that's one way to see what we're up to. And we'll be we'll be sharing information about yeah, what we're doing on there. We've got a website, fireforward.org can take you to learning more about what we're up to. This is this is exciting. I you know, I I didn't know what to expect because we haven't met before and I've just learned about the work that you're doing, but to to know and understand that there is so much energy directed at trying to stem the tide of what we've been through for the last five years and that there is a sort of a rational view and approach to management of of wildland fire and that we have experts like you doing that hard work is heartening and it's exciting i think we're all kind of in that space of it's going to be a, a really challenging few months there's no platitude to apply to it and there's no good predictive model aside from it's going to be hard and we'll lean on each other. We'll lean on our, you know, community members and experts like yourself and we'll come out the other side looking how we look, I guess, and we'll go forward from there. In the meantime, though, this is amazing. It's it's incredible to to know of Fire Forward and to know of the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you about all of this and and I'm in full agreement. We'll we'll get through this summer and we'll do it together as a community and we'll we'll proceed on the other side. Thank you so much, Sasha. Thank you. My thanks once again to Dr. Berlman for joining us on Explore the Space podcast. We've got links in the show notes to all of the things that she referenced. And if you are interested in a donation to the Fire Forward program, you can go to the Audubon Canyon Ranch website and donate there. It is a nonprofit organization. Thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Learn more about Creighton's Executive MBA and Executive Fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. Thank you also to the Clinician Experience Project by Practicing Excellence for sponsoring this episode. The Clinician Experience Project provides enterprise-wide healthcare coaching and development solutions for clinicians, leaders, and teams to improve patient connection, team collaboration, and leadership effectiveness. Organizations see significant results when participants spend a mere five minutes per week 
building skills through app-delivered programs. To learn more, visit www.practicingexcellence.com. Thanks to you for listening to this episode. We will have more great content coming soon. Until then, take care of yourselves. Please do share this episode if you've enjoyed it. Please do subscribe to Explore the Space wherever you'd like to download your shows. You can email me, Mark, at explorethespaceshow.com and hit me on Twitter at ETS Show. We will be back soon with more great content. Until then, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.